Romans. Romans. <laughs> See, it's, it's old, <clears throat> old habits die hard. We're in Proverbs. Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13. And we'll read, read the chapter. But as we have been doing, we'll take half of it this week and half of it next week. Proverbs 13, verse 1, says, A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of a man's mouth he enjoys good, but the desire of the treacherous is violence. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. There is one who pretends to be rich, but has nothing, and another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. A wicked messenger falls into adversity, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline, but he who regards reproof will be honored. Desire realized is sweet to the soul, but it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Adversity pursues sinners, but the righteous will be rewarded with prosperity. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it is swept away by injustice. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we pray that today you might grant to us, Lord, a wise and discerning heart. Lord, that we would be those who are trained in righteousness. Lord, who by constant practice are able to distinguish between good and evil. Lord, teach us to make a distinction between what is righteous and what is wicked. Lord, to abhor and to hate sin. And Lord, to love and to walk in those ways that are pleasing to you. Lord, just as we spoke of this morning. Lord, just as we saw in that wilderness generation. Lord, we don't want to be like them. But rather, Lord, we want to be like the wise man, Lord, who increases in wisdom and who does and lives in those ways that are pleasing to you. So, Lord, teach us today how to live unto you, 
And Lord, may we be found walking in your ways. Bind our hearts to you, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are again in this middle section of the book of Proverbs, where having commended to us the way of wisdom, the prophet is now contrasting to us both the life of the righteous and the life of the wicked, showing us these two things very clearly so that we might love what is good and hate what is evil, walk in the path of the righteous and avoid those pathways that are filled with sin and with evil. Even as we were mentioning in the prayer, this is what we were doing this morning, right? Talking about the wilderness generation. These things are given to us in order to make a distinction between good and evil, right? It is clearly displayed and taught to us what is good and what is evil. Then we also see the way that God responds to what is good and what is evil, right? It's obvious. It is without any confusion at all. So all we need to do then is believe the word of God, believe what it says, and then walk in what God has called us to do. And that's why he is doing these things, right? At the very beginning of the book, He's giving this to his son so that he would be acquainted with the ways of wisdom, so that he would know the fear of the Lord so that he might walk in those ways. And that is how we need to be as well. So let's start here in verse 1, and today we'll go through verse 12. Proverbs 13, verse 1. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Here, one of the attributes or characteristics of a wise son is that he accepts his father's discipline, knowing that his father knows what is best for him. His father knows how to teach him, instruct him, right? The son has to have an attitude of humility, an attitude that he does not understand. It is not the end all of all wisdom and understanding. This is oftentimes a folly that is bound up in youth, that young people think that they are wiser, that they have more wisdom and understanding than their seniors, right? Than those who are older than them, many times than their own father, right? Many times we probably have all gone through this ourselves, that there is a time in life where you think you know better than everyone. Hopefully that's not the case. And you grow out of that. And as you get older, many times you realize you don't know what you're talking about at all. Right, And that perhaps your parents, your father, knew more about what he was talking about than what we gave them credit for. Well, a wise son will accept his father's discipline. Right Now, again, this is assuming the father is a righteous man. Though even if the father is an unbeliever, there will be things that an, even an unbelieving father will teach his son that can be beneficial. But here we're talking about a righteous father who knows the word of God and who is teaching his children the things of God and disciplining them according to the standard of God. The wise son will accept that knowing that his father knows what is best for him and that is why his father is disciplining him in the way that he does. Now this is true in two regards. It is true of our earthly fathers that a wise son will accept the discipline of his earthly father But also, it is primarily true of our Heavenly Father that a wise spiritual son of God will accept the discipline of his Heavenly Father. In Ephesians 6, 1-3, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It is right for Christian children to obey their parents in the Lord, insofar as what their parents what they are teaching them is consistent with the word of God, then the children ought to obey their parents in the Lord because it is the right 
thing to do. But how much more should we subject ourselves to our Father in heaven, who knows how to perfectly discipline us? Our heavenly fathers, or our, 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 our earthly fathers, discipline us as they see fit, as is best and right in their own eyes. But our heavenly father, he knows exactly what we need. And he knows perfectly how to discipline us. That was the problem with that wilderness generation. They were doubting God's wisdom. That their father, so-called father as they claimed him to be, knew what was best for them and they would not submit to his wise providential dealings with them. He was disciplining them and then they were resisting that discipline, kicking and screaming like spoiled little brats. Well, we don't want to be like that toward our earthly fathers, nor do we want to be like that toward our heavenly father who knows perfectly how to discipline us. So if God brings hardships into our life, and God can do that, whether that be some great illness that we experience, whether that be poverty, a loss of job, loss of of some relationship, whatever it is, and there is some hardship that comes into our life, do we think that that is happening to us outside of the will of God, outside of the sovereignty of God, that somehow things are out of control, God doesn't want this to happen to us, and it's happening outside of his realm of authority. No, it's impossible for that to be the case. So if it comes upon us, whose hand is it coming from? It is coming from the hand of God. It is a discipline for us, and it is for our good. And a wise man will accept that discipline from God. Right, even if it's as extreme as what the prophet Job experienced. But we know of the steadfastness of Job, that he, though again, he did have some temporary doubts and sin during the middle of that trial and tribulation, but did he forsake the Lord? Did he curse God and die as his wife told him to do? No, he accepted the discipline of the Lord and he grew from it and was a better man on the other side than he was before it. And therefore, he grew in those things. Actually, Job chapter 5, Job 5, 17. Job 5, 17 says, Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Right? Happy is the man whom God reproves. Happy because the discipline of the Lord produces within us the fruit of righteousness. And when God disciplines us, he's treating us as sons. And when we see that, it reminds us that we belong to God, that we are his children. If we never have discipline from God, then many times people think God loves them, God favors them. But a Son who is not disciplined is an illegitimate child. That's why the wicked and the unbelieving have prosperity. They have comfort. They have ease in this life. God isn't treating them as sons. He disciplines, he scourges every son whom he loves. So we should be happy when God reproves us because it is a manifestation of his love for us. Also Psalm 94 verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Blessed is the man that is chastened by the Lord. So this is a benefit and a blessing for God to discipline us, and therefore we ought to accept it from the parental love of God. 
But the scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A scoffer is an unbeliever, one who has an evil, unbelieving heart. And when the discipline of God comes on him, he doesn't listen to it. He's not molded and shaped by it, right? He doesn't grow in righteousness from it, but rather he manifests his sin and his wickedness. Again, the preeminent example of this in all the Bible is the wilderness generation. Because when they faced the discipline of God, they continually scoffed at him. They scoffed at God, and they scoffed at his prophet Moses. And when they were persecuting Moses, who were they ultimately trying to persecute? God himself. They hated it. They hated the discipline of the Lord. And they did not learn from those things. Therefore, they were an evil, unbelieving people. Verse 2. From the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good. But the desire of the treacherous is violence. The fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good. The fruit of the mouth, these are the words, right? The words that come out of his mouth is good for the man if those words are good words, right? If the words are true words, if what he is speaking is consistent with the word of God, then that is going to be for his good, for his blessing. Now, many times when he is saying these things, when he's speaking publicly or or outwardly, he's talking to other people. So he may be saying these things not primarily for himself. Someone has asked him a question. Someone has asked him for counsel or for advice. And he is telling this person what the word of God says. But who is that ultimately also going to benefit? It's going to benefit himself. Not only is it good for the listener, but it is even good for him. And that is why he is going to enjoy good from the fruit of his own mouth. Because if he's saying this to someone else, We're assuming here he's not a hypocrite. He means it himself as well. And he's going to listen to his own counsel. What he gives to others, he himself has first taken into his heart. This is like Ezra in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. He studied the word of God. He himself believed it. He himself practiced it. And then he taught it to everyone else. But he first believed it himself. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12 33 to 37. Also, the fruit of the mouth is a manifestation of the heart, of the heart. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There, the words, the mouth, the fruit of the lips, right, This man will enjoy good because his lips that are seasoned with the grace of God and with the truth of God are going to be used as a manifestation of his heart. In this life, it gives him confidence that he is a child of God. Right When these good words are coming out of his mouth and he actually believes these things, that's why he's speaking them, then it affirms him, it assures him that I have a good heart. And why do I have a good heart? Well, it's not because of anything that I did, but it's because the Holy Spirit lives within me. He is the one causing me to speak in these good ways. So he's going to enjoy good in this life 
from the fruit of his lips, but also in the life to come from the fruit of his lips. Also, it's going to be beneficial to him, according to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Here, speaking to the minister, the preacher of righteousness. Notice here, 1 Timothy 4, 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Here, his teaching, which is the fruit of his mouth, his lips, is a benefit not only for his listeners, but who else? His own soul, right? His own soul. He'll save himself. Again, not meaning that he is saving himself with, apart from Christ, but the word of Christ is the means used by God to grant salvation. And as he is preaching faithfully the word of Christ, it will be a benefit both for his own soul and for the soul of those who hear him. Now, the contrast to that is the wicked man, the treacherous man. The desire of the treacherous is violence, right? The treacherous man who speaks evil things will have violence. This is what will come upon him. Revelation 18, Revelation 18, verses 4 to 8. says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning." For she says in her heart, I sat as queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. There, she will receive double for all of her sin. God will repay her according to what she has done. Well, this is what God does to the treacherous. The one who has the good lips, he will enjoy good from his fruit. But the one who has evil, treacherous lips, his desire is treacherous, he will receive violence as the payment for his deeds. Verse 3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Here, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. Now this is, again, these things are true, not only because they're in the Bible, but just practically looking around, we can see that this is indeed true. People who can't shut up, right, who just say whatever's on their mind all the time, no matter what, do they not often get themselves in trouble many times? People will often talk about, you know, sticking your foot in your mouth. Well, that's a person who just blabbers all the time. They're constantly doing these kinds of things. Well, that's what the Word of God teaches. But if we guard our mouth... We preserve our life. And there are people who just through careless words have lost their even physical life because of things that they have said in the presence of the wrong people. We have to be very guarded with our mouth 
and know who we're dealing with and what is the situation and does it necessitate me speaking on it? How should I speak on it? Should I be cautious in the way that I am addressing these things? Right? We have to have this kind of wisdom and the word of God teaches us to put a muzzle on our mouth, right? to put a bridle on our tongue and to not let our tongue have free reign to say whatever it wants to say. Isn't the tongue described as a restless evil that it is set on fire by hell itself? And that if a man can bridle his tongue, he is an absolutely perfect man, right? The one member of our body that is responsible for more sin than any other member is the tongue, right? The tongue, because people love to, they, they can't help themselves. They just, they just have to speak up. They cannot restrain their tongue. It ultimately is a manifestation of their pride. That's why people have to be heard because they are the smartest, wisest person in the world and they have to speak up and they cannot, they just can't help themselves. But they will come to ruin because of such things. James chapter 1, verse 19. 1, 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak. But isn't that the opposite of what we often see? People are often quick to speak and slow to hear. But he says, don't be like that. Be quick to hear and be slow to speak. Then also, James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. James 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds. Are they still directed by a very small rudder? wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defies, defiles the entire body and set on fire by the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed, and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. There, the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts very great things, right? And it causes a lot of problems. Now, again, he doesn't mean that we should never speak. Of course, there are times when we have to speak and we must speak. But when we speak, we must be very careful. We must guard our tongues to make sure we're not speaking and saying things contrary to the word of God. And the way that we do that is by having our mind formed to the mind of Christ, so that what comes out of our mouth is consistent with the word of God. 
We must guard our mouth, and that will preserve our life. But the one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The one who gives free rein to his mouth. You know, and there are people who are like this. They act like it's a virtue. I just say whatever is on my mind. That's the problem. You do say whatever's on your mind, and you shouldn't. Right? They act like it's a virtue to be like this, just to blabber out whatever comes to their mind, but it's not a virtue. Right? We need to guard ourselves and not open our mouth in that way. Right? Opening wide the lips leads to ruin. It says in Ecclesiastes 10.20, it says, Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make their matter known. He says there, even in your bedchamber, even in your sleeping room, a place where you're isolated, a place where you're there with those that you trust the most. You think, I can speak freely here. I can give free rein to my tongue and say what's really on my mind, and nothing will ever come to it. I can curse the king here and talk about how horrible he is in my bedchamber, or the rich man. But he says, don't do it, because a bird will take it and carry it to them, and then the king is going to come and, and say, what did, you say, what did you say about me? I heard you were saying this about me. And then you're going to face his wrath, and it's not going to go well with you. So you should be very guarded in what you say. Also, we ought to remember in our own day that many people think on the Internet they are anonymous, right? And we can say whatever we want. Even there, it's not good to just let loose because you never know. Well, you can tell, guarantee the CIA is probably listening and the government, right? And you don't know what they're going to do, right? They might show up and arrest us all. So just guard our tongue in what we say. Number four, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. The soul of the sluggard craves, but he gets nothing. He craves the good that he sees out there. He craves the blessings that other people have. He says, oh, I would like that. I would want that. Whether that be riches, whether that be some comfort, whether that be some knowledge, right? Some wisdom, some degree, some honorable title that someone has worked hard to obtain. The sluggard sees that and says, well, that would be really nice. I would like to be a rich man, right? I would like to be an honorable man. I would like to have this high position of nobility here in the land. I would like to have this knowledge or this degree or to have a nice home, to have a family, right? Ooh, to be able to have plenty of food and to be well-fed, right? They want these things. They crave these things, but they do not have these things. And why do they not have? Because they're lazy. They won't work for it. Whatever is good, whatever is in these honorable type things that they see, it takes hard work to gain those things. You don't just get it overnight. It's not going to be handed to you on a silver platter. This is the entitled nature that we see so prevalent in our own generation today. They want everything handed to them without any work, without any diligence. And this is why the sluggard craves. He sees the good. He wants it. But he never gets it because he will not work for it. He is not diligent to obtain these things. Now, ultimately, this has to be applied spiritually because the sluggard also craves heaven. No one wants to go to hell, right? You talk to anyone out on the street and you ask them, would you want to go to heaven or hell? And everyone wants to go to heaven, right? Unless they're just out of their mind and insane. But most people are sluggards. 
when it comes to spiritual matters. They will not strive to enter into the kingdom of Christ. They will not discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. They just want it to come easy and naturally while they're sitting on their couches, eating potato chips, watching Netflix. That's what they want, and then they're just going to glide their way right into the kingdom of God. They crave the reward, but they will not give themselves diligently to what is necessary to obtain the reward, whether that be pertaining to this life or whether that be pertaining to the life to come. Isn't it through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God? Didn't we read this morning about the wilderness generation and that they failed the test because they did not strive, they did not endure, they had no perseverance. They were sluggards, spiritual sluggards, who craved to enter into the rest of God, but whenever they saw that they were going to have to fight for it and actually go in and take on these other nations and that the people were so big and strong, then they wilted. They didn't persevere in those things. Well, this is how many people are today. We can't be like that, right? The sluggard craves but gets nothing. But the diligent, the soul of the diligent, he's the one who is made fat. The diligent man, right? The life of the righteous man. Discipline, endurance, right? He is striving to enter into the kingdom of God. And because he is diligent to give himself to the things of God, he will become fat spiritually, which is a good thing, right? Being fat physically is bad, but being fat spiritually, that's what we want. We want to be plump, spiritual Christians. And we will obtain that through discipline, through discipline, through striving, right? Don't we have to sometimes, you know, of course, what we really want and desire is that every day we wake up and we have a hunger for the Word of God and we want to read the Word of God as our greatest desire and a great desire to pray to God. But because of the flesh, many times those spiritual things can be difficult and hard. But what do we have to do? We have to do it anyway, right? We have to do it anyway. Just like the man who has obtained the PhD had many, many hours of study. Just like the man who has become rich through hard work had many, many hours of difficult, hard work. He had to persevere. And did he always want to do those things? Did he want to be deprived of sleep? Did he want to be deprived of his family in order to obtain? No, but he had to do it. He had to do it. And in doing so, he obtained the reward. And this is how we have to be in the Christian life. We have to be diligent. Diligent to pursue the things of God. Verse 5. A righteous man hates falsehood, but a wicked man acts disgustingly and shamefully. The righteous hate falsehood. Whatever is false, they hate, they abhor these types of things. Whether that be falsehood he sees in himself... He wants to get rid of it or falsehood he sees in others, in his daily conversations, in his doctrine, in his morality. He hates what is false and he loves what is true and what is good. The wicked man, on the other hand, he loves falsehood. He likes to speak it. He likes to think about it, to embrace it. He lives according to what is false. And as a result, he lives disgustingly and shamefully. He lives a shameful, disgusting life, a depraved life, a corrupt life, because he has embraced falsehood as a virtue, as something that is good and noble. And so his behavior is disgusting and contrary. 
And this is what people will see. Ultimately, they will manifest through their falsehood and lies that their behavior, their own conduct, is it's not good and right. Whether they be overt unbelievers or whether they be professing Christians who are behaving badly, right? Their own deeds will testify to their disgusting, shameful behavior. And people will say, this isn't consistent with the Christian life, right? How can you, who profess to be a Christian, live like this and do the things that you are doing? We shouldn't be like that. Revelation 21, 21, 27. This is speaking of the new heavens and new earth. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean, nothing disgusting, nothing shameful. No one who loves lying and practicing abominations will come into the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Verse 6, righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. Here, righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless. And the righteousness of God is the righteousness found in the person of Christ. This is, again, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. As this truth is taught to us, as we hear it over and over and over again, and for how long of our Christian life do we need to hear the gospel? Forever, right? For all of it, from the day of our conversion till the day of our death, we need to hear constantly the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God in Christ, that our salvation rests upon Him and what He has done for us. We need to hear this over and over again. These truths keep us on the straight and narrow path. That is what we need to hear over and over again. In contrast, the wicked, his wickedness subverts the sinner, right? The wickedness of the wicked will actually subvert him on the day of judgment. False teaching, the false teaching and his false ways. They are convinced, right, that what is false is true, that what is evil is good, that what is darkness is light, right? What is sour is actually sweet, right? They are completely subverted by these things. And then ultimately, on the day of judgment, they will be consumed by their own sin. Believing these lies their whole life, going into eternity thinking that everything is fine between them and God, and yet coming to the day of judgment, and they will be completely frustrated, and all of their lies will be overturned. And what they pursued will actually subvert them on the day of judgment because they are put under a strong delusion so that they believe what is false. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that God gives them a strong delusion and they believe what is false so that they are condemned. And this is what will happen to all the ungodly and the wicked. Verse 7, there is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. Here, this is true and can be seen both materially and spiritually. Right? There are those who live outside of their means, who pretend to be rich. Right? They give the impression that they are of one class when in reality they are of another class. 
This is common in America today because we have a debtor nation and people are living in massive amounts of debt so that they can have a lifestyle that is not consistent with what they actually are, with what they actually make. They pretend to be rich, but actually they're poor. They're really slaves, right? They're slaves to debt, to banks, to lending institutions, to interest, you know, and all these things. So there are those that are like that, but also there are those who are like that spiritually. They pretend to be rich spiritually, but actually they are very poor spiritually. They have nothing spiritually. This would be true of the self-righteous, like the scribes and Pharisees, who thought that they were very righteous people, but actually they were very poor people. They had absolutely no righteousness at all. An example of this would be Revelation chapter 3. The church at Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. He says, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here, when he says hot or cold, he doesn't mean, I wish you were a true believer or just an idolater. He means hot or cold in the sense of, useful. Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. Lukewarm water is useless, right? You just want to spit it out of your mouth, right? Because it's so tepid. Hot water, you can make tea or coffee out of it, you know, and you have a nice drink. Cold water is refreshing, right? Because it's so good. That's what he means here. He means, I wish you were useful, but you're not useful for anything. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're lukewarm. You're tepid. And therefore, I want to spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. They said that they were rich. Right? They said that they were wealthy. They said that they had nothing. But in reality, spiritually, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They had nothing. They pretended to be rich, but in reality, they were spiritually poor. In contrast to this, there is the one who pretends to be poor, but is actually, he has great wealth. And this can be true both, again, materially, but also spiritually, right? There are those who live, uh, who have a lot of money, but they don't show it. They don't drive expensive cars. They don't live in huge mansions. They don't live this kind of uh, exorbitant type of lifestyle. You see them out and about and you think they're just like us, right? They're just a commoner, but in reality, they're a very wealthy individual. But also this is true spiritually. Blessed are the the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? The truly righteous man, the true believer, his own opinion of himself is often of what attitude? He has a very low esteem of himself. He considers himself to be the worst sinner in the world, worse than everyone else. Isn't this what the apostle Paul said about himself? He was the chief of sinners. He pretended, not that he was pretending in a vain way, But his own assessment of himself 
was that he was very poor. But in reality, he was actually very rich. Because it is those who are poor in spirit who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. It, are, it is those who are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They are the ones who will go to Christ. And then what will Christ give to them? His own righteousness, which will make them richer than the richest king in the world. They are poor, but they become rich. This is like the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector wouldn't even look to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He had a very poor view of himself. But who in a way justified that day? Not the Pharisee who thought he was rich. He thought he was righteous. He did not go home justified. It was the tax collector who thought he was poor who went home justified. Who was the one that was truly wealthy? The tax collector, right? Though the Pharisee thought he had it all. Uh, He was wrong. Verse 8. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. But the poor hears no rebuke. Now, this could be taken one of two ways. Either in times of hardship, the rich are preserved because of their wealth, right? Their life is ransomed because they have great wealth. Whereas poor people, you know, they just kill them and throw throw them in a ditch. The rich man, because of his wealth, because that they can be a benefit, then they are preserved during these times of trouble. An example of this would be Jeremiah 41, verse 8. Jeremiah 41, verse 8. says, But ten men who were found among them said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the field. So he refrained and did not put them to death along with their companions. The companions didn't have anything. They were poor, and so they died. But the ten men who had some means to them, they had some wealth, they were kept alive so that they could get their money. Right. So their wealth was their ransom during this day of trouble. So he could mean it in that way, that the wealthy man is ransomed in this way while the poor man is just put to death. Or he could mean it that the rich are often the targets of thieves and swindlers. Whereas the poor, you can't get anything out of them. So why am I going to break into his house? He doesn't have anything. Why am I going to... uh, try to have him run into me with his car so I can sue him and make a bunch of money. They don't target people like us when they're doing that, but they do want to target rich people. They want them to run over them while they're riding their bike so that they can sue them and then try to squeeze some money out of them and and get wealthy themselves. But they don't do that to poor people. The poor people are left alone. The poor don't have to lock their doors at night. They don't have to lock their cars because who's going to steal it? It's a piece of junk, right? But if you have a very nice car, then you're always afraid that someone's going to take it. Isn't that the way it is in this present world? Verse 9, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. The light of the righteous rejoices. The light that is in the righteous man brings rejoicing to his soul. It brings rejoicing to other saints as well. Right? And what is the light that is within the righteous? 
It is the very life of Christ. It is Christ himself who is the light of the world that through his Holy Spirit that dwells within the righteous, this is his light and this is what causes him to rejoice because the Spirit himself is a pledge from God that he is his child and he is a guarantor of his future inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. This is why our light is supposed to shine before men. Matthew chapter 5. Right? We should not be ashamed of Christ or his word. Right? There's nothing to be ashamed of. Matthew 5, 4, uh, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become saltless or tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So let your light shine before men. The light of Christ within you needs to shine before men, and that's not a light to be ashamed of, but rather we should rejoice that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and that we have the Word of God. We know the gospel of Christ. We know how to live a godly life. And we should do that unashamedly in this present world, right? If all the lights go out and it's pitch dark, is someone afraid to light a light, a lamp, so that everyone is able to see? That's not a hindrance to people. That's a great benefit to them. So why would they be ashamed if they have a light? And why should we be ashamed in that we have the very light of Christ within us. But the lamp of the wicked will go out. The lamp of the wicked is his life. And his life will soon go away. It will go out and he will enter into eternal torment. And even what little bit of light he has in himself, right? even the unbeliever, has some light of nature, some light of conscience within, within them, But that light does not benefit them. It does not lead to eternal life. And eventually, that light will be taken away from them, and they will have eternal darkness. Their lamp will go out, and that will be the end for them. Verse 10. Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. An insolent man is an arrogant man, a prideful man, one who thinks he knows everything. In those kinds of people who are insolent in that way, what is constantly around them? Trouble, strife, conflict, contention. They're brawlers, they're fighters, because they know everything. And if anyone disagrees with them, they're a son of the devil, right? If anyone disagrees with them, they don't know anything, right? And they're going to constantly pick fights with them and prove to everyone that they're right and everyone else is wrong. And there's constant strife, bitterness, Carping that goes on with insolent type of people. Pride brings nothing but strife. It brings strife whenever we are swollen in this way, right? We can't be like that. We have to have some humility. Now, I'm not saying that we have to make everything a matter of preference and opinion, that you can just believe whatever you want. Of course, we can't be like that. But the way that we go about it must be in a way that is consistent with Christian charity, 
with gentleness, with patience, with love for others, and not this haughty, arrogant, insolent attitude that does nothing but breed strife and contention among many, many people. 1 Timothy 6, this is indicative of false teachers. False teachers are constantly surrounded by strife and contention. 1 Timothy 6, 3 says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. There, controversial questions, disputes, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction, right? This is what he's talking about with insolence. Insolence breeds this type of attitude and atmosphere so that there's constant turmoil that is going on in the life and in the uh, influence, whatever it is around, this is what is taking place there with the insolent man. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel, right? The one who is humble and who receives, right? We're not talking about bad counsel, but he receives good counsel, right? There is going to be wisdom with him because he's going to grow in his understanding more and more. Then verse 11, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. Here, wealth that is obtained by fraud, fraudulent means, whether by theft, through gambling, through the lottery, right? Whatever it is, there are ways that people gain and acquire wealth that is fraudulent. It's not through hard work, good investment, diligence, doing these kinds of things. Well, the one who gains it in these fraudulent ways, it usually comes very quickly, and as quickly as it comes, it also goes away. They don't know how to manage it, right? They squander it. Now, sometimes it gets taken away from them because they get caught, and the government seizes it, then they squander it. Uh, sometimes, though, it just dwindles because they're careless with it, right? They, They've already proven that they're careless with their money. They went to the casino for crying out loud. They don't care about it. And then they hit it big there. And what are they going to do with all that money? Well, I made it. I mean, I made this much at the casino this time. I'll take it all and I'll do it all again, right? And I'll even have more money. But what ends up happening? It dwindles. It goes away and nothing is left. Jeremiah 17, 11. As a partridge that hatches eggs, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him. And in the end, he will be a fool. Right here, the partridge hatches eggs, which it has not laid. Stolen eggs, right? Well, the one who makes a fortune unjustly, that fortune will dwindle away. On the contrast, the one who gathers by labor increases it. The one who gathers and increases his wealth by hard work and labor. His wealth will be more sustainable, right? It, because it's not fraudulent, the authorities are not going to seize it. He also isn't going to, 
you know, if you made it that quickly, you can also lose it that quickly, right? Whenever there is diligence and it takes time for a person to increase their wealth, well, all along the way, are they not learning how to manage it, right? They learn how to manage a salary of $50,000 a year. Then they get a salary of $75,000 a year and they learn how to manage it. And then they get a bigger salary and a bigger salary and, a big, and they're able along the way, they're able to learn how to manage those things and how to live within their means and what they are supposed to do with that. So they gain this wisdom as they go along and then if they get wealthy one day, they know how to deal with it, right? They know how to deal with it and they know how to be faithful in little and they know how to be faithful in much because they've proven themselves through steps along the way versus the one who goes from rags to riches and then he doesn't know how to handle it. And isn't it true that many of the people who have won the lottery, they go bankrupt, right? They, they, they go back to poverty because they squander. They squander everything that they have received. This is the way it often goes and that's why the Bible's telling us this. Then verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desires fulfilled is the tree of life. Here, hope deferred. Whenever the object desired is not immediately obtained, the heart sinks and fails. Right? The heart becomes sick. Now, this could be uh, a hope or a desire that is not legitimate or just or righteous. In that case, it would be a sin. But even in this present life, even when the hope is good and it is delayed, it does cause the heart to sink sometimes. It becomes very difficult to endure those types of things. And this is according to, if we look at Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, there was a hope given to him that after the Babylonians destroyed Israel, that God would repay the Babylonians according to what they had done. And they would get their reward. So that hope was put in front of him, but it was not hope that was going to be quickly obtained. They were going to have to wait many years for that to come about. And so notice what he says in Habakkuk 3.16. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation." The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high places. So there, his inward parts are trembling. His lips quivering. Decay enters his bone. He's trembling in his place because he has to wait quietly for the day of distress to come upon the Babylonians. They're going to do this to us and then we're going to have to wait for God to do it to them. And while he waits his heart sinks, right? It fails him in this way. Not that he's failing ultimately or that it's sinking into ultimate despair. He's still hoping in the Lord. He's still trusting in the Lord, but it's difficult to endure that situation and he knows that it's going to be a very hard trial to endure. 
And that is the way it is in this life when we face various trials and tribulations. It is a reminder to us that we have not obtained our hope yet. Because what is the hope of our faith? Eternal rest. Rest with God. And while we are in this life, we don't have that rest yet. We still have strife, turmoil, conflict. We have it in part, right? We have it in a deposit, but we don't have it in its full form. And while we wait for that, many times our heart sinks as we long to enter into the kingdom of God, the redemption of our body. But when those desires are fulfilled, he says it is a tree of life. When the desires that we have are fulfilled by God, and we have that in part in this life as well, God gives us tokens of his love and kindness. He fills us in these ways, and we obtain what we are seeking from the Lord. And when we obtain that, it is like a tree of life. It fills us with joy, with rejoicing. And then ultimately, our ultimate hope, which is to be with God forever, that will one day be realized as well. And what will the new heavens and new earth be? But continual partaking of the tree of life. Eternal life with God forever. That is what we will enjoy for all eternity. So that's what we need to pursue. Pursue it now. Don't faint. Don't grow weary, right? Press on toward the kingdom of God. And let's live a godly life and do those things that are pleasing to the Lord. Well, before we pray, I want to mention a few things. One, uh, Kathy was telling me this morning that their neighbor, it's their neighbor, her name is Taryn. Taryn, and this is a young man that visited on a Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago named Seth, his sister, had a miscarriage uh, this morning or yesterday and uh, is, has lost a lot of blood from that as well. So we want to pray for that family. Her name is Taryn, just for God to comfort them. Uh, and it's a very difficult thing to go through and experience that kind of loss. Then also, Mike and Marianne have COVID right now. So please pray for them, that God would uh, bring them healing and that they would be back uh, with us soon. And then another one we mentioned last week, we prayed for the Stokes family. That was because they have a son named Noah who was having a very difficult surgery last Monday, and they didn't know if he would be able to make it through that. And he did make it through it. And actually, he went home from the hospital on Friday. So we want to praise God for that, and he's doing, he's doing much better. So, uh, so that's a good, good report there. So let's remember these, and we'll pray for them as we dismiss. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to be together today, Lord, to open up the very word of life. And Lord, we thank you that you have set this hope before us. Lord, the hope of eternal life. Lord, the hope of the full redemption of our bodies. Lord, of being delivered from this present evil age. Lord, from being delivered from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, to be in your presence for all eternity, to see you, Lord, face to face, to be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that is what we long for. Lord, this is what is our hope. And yet, Lord, we know that this hope at the moment is deferred in that we have not entered into that kingdom yet. But, Lord, we pray that our hearts would not fail us. Lord, that they would not sink to despair but that while we wait patiently, Lord, we would strengthen our hands and our knees 
and we would make straight paths for our feet and that we would press on until we enter into the kingdom of God. So Lord, grant to us that endurance that we need and Lord, help us to see and to be reminded that when these desires are fulfilled for us, it will be the tree of life. It will be eternal life. And so, Lord, we pray that we would, Lord, strive until we obtain it. And, Lord, give us your grace and your strength this week so that we might live lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, help us to do your will, Lord, in all things. Father, we do pray this morning for Taryn, Lord, and for her family. Lord, knowing that uh, it is very, a very hard and difficult trial, Lord, to, to lose a pregnancy, and Lord, to go through that, um, Lord, just that, that loss and the sadness that accompanies that. Lord, there is so much joy uh, when uh, a young lady finds out that she's pregnant and that she will be having a child. And then for that uh, joy and that expectation, Lord, to be lost is very, very hard and difficult. And we pray for you to comfort her today. Lord, we pray that you give Casey and Kathy, Lord, wisdom and help to be able to uh, comfort that family, Lord, to speak to them the very words of life, those things that will be beneficial, and Lord, that might bring your peace to them. So we pray for your blessing upon her today, and Lord, we again ask for you to, to be with her, and Lord, help her body to, to heal properly. We pray that you preserve and protect her there, but also that you would use this to shape and mold her spiritually as well. Father, as well, we pray for Mike and Mary Ann today. As they are at home, uh, Lord, with uh, sickness, we pray that they would recover fully and that they might be able to be with us again next week. So, Lord, be with them and bless them, and, Lord, help them to uh, gain their strength back and to overcome this sickness. Lord, as well, we thank you for the good report from the Stokes family this week. Lord, thank you for preserving the life of Noah, Lord, knowing that it was a very hard and difficult surgery that could have, Lord, easily uh, cost him his life. And we thank you that you saw fit to preserve him and to give him more days on this earth. Lord, we pray that he would make use of them and that it might be a blessing to his family. Lord, continue to sustain the Stokes family, especially RJ and Chrissy, Lord, as they uh, go through these trials and Lord, be with them. Father, help us as we travel home today. We pray that you give us safety as we drive, that you continue to bless us this Lord's day. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.